Greetings and salutations, my fellow plebs. My name is Walker, and this is The Bitcoin Podcast. It's Tuesday, August 22nd, 2023. The Bitcoin block height is 804397, and the value of one Bitcoin is still one Bitcoin. Today's episode is the first episode of Bitcoin Talk, where I talk about Bitcoin and many other things with my guest. Today, that guest is Jordan Schachtel. Jordan is the publisher of The Dossier, and he's a Bitcoiner. You can find all Jordan's social media links in the show notes. So, without further ado, let's get into it. Greetings and salutations, my fellow plebs. My name is Walker, and this is The Bitcoin Podcast. I am joined today by Jordan Schachtel. Jordan is the publisher of The Dossier, and he is also a Bitcoiner. So Jordan, thank you for joining me today. I'm glad we got a chance to talk. Yeah, thanks for having me, Walker. And I, and I love the name The Bitcoin Podcast, because obviously that means it's better than any other podcast that discusses Bitcoin, because this is the official Bitcoin well, podcast. So it's an honor to be on the number one Bitcoin podcast. Absolutely. And you know, I, uh, I, I decided like, obviously it's uh, a bit douchey to call it that. Right. But I honestly got the idea. I went to university of Wisconsin and, uh, Ohio state at some point started mm-hmm. calling themselves the Ohio state. And I was like, mm-hmm. God, that's so annoying. But now I'm like, Oh, it's an anno- annoying in a funny way to me at this point. So, uh, I'm, I'm glad you're happy to be on the Bitcoin podcast, not just another fucking Bitcoin podcast, but the Bitcoin podcast. <laughs> no, I, I really like the name. And, you know, it, it's interesting because, you know, it, Bitcoin is not a corporation. So really anyone can call themselves whatever in reference to Bitcoin. You call yourself the CEO of Bitcoin. You can say, I am the host of the best, you know, the number one Bitcoin podcast. And it's fine. So I like it. You know, it's up to the audience to determine the truth. And I think that they will agree. This is probably the best Bitcoin podcast out there, even though you just started. Yeah, we'll leave it up to the consensus, uh, consensus of the plebs, you know, whatever they Mm -hmm. decide. And shockingly, BitcoinPodcast.net was available, uh, not .com. I'm not sure who's using it, but it's uh, idle. So anytime you can squat on a good domain, it's like, why not? Right. (laughs) And speaking of good domains, so you are the publisher at dossier.today. URL is correct there? Yeah, dossier.com was like a million dollars. So so I went with the $2 variation dossier.today. And and I bought, um, you know, do, the dossier is affiliated with Substack. But, you know, Twitter is my biggest platform, had like 260-something thousand followers on there. So I use that to kind of like send my followers um, and readers to the Substack. But um, since, you know, we've moved over to Twitter 2.0, we've had this thing where the Substack links are getting, the, the images don't populate because something in the code of Twitter now um, stops them from populating. So what you have to do as a Substacker now is you need to buy a new domain to redirect to. So it is a Substack, but but the URL is now dossier.today, which I like. And, you know, $2 a year. So how can you beat that? I mean, that's a, that's a great deal. I, I did notice that with the, uh, you know, Elon's latest iteration of, uh, I guess we have to call it X now. I'm just still going to keep calling it Twitter. Like it's just, it's so deep in my brain that like, I can't mm-hmm. get rid of that. Like it's Twitter and their tweets, like not X and Zs or whatever it is. Uh, but 
the amount of suppression that any sort of external link gets is just absurd. Like even if it's not a direct Substack link, for example, like anything that's not native Twitter content just seems to be like pushed way, way down, which I guess he's trying to turn it into the everything platform, um, like on the road to like a WeChat style type of thing. Um, I don't know if that is his end goal. It kind of seems like it. Uh, but it's kind of a shame because it makes sharing anything on Twitter like, okay, you can now like if you have a paid subscriber, you know, Twitter blue uh, or X black or whatever they're going to call it now. Like, yeah, you can upload really long videos and everything. Uh, but I feel like in terms of content itself, the platform still has a long ways to go before it like is able to totally get rid of external links because that's like for a lot of people, they want to direct people elsewhere like there there isn't that. Uh, uh, that desire to post everything on there. Like yeah. maybe I, I know a lot of filmmakers who so it's like, I want people to go to my YouTube, but I can't post the direct YouTube link in the first post because it won't get any sort of traction. So I've, have you seen, you're at, I think, getting close to 50,000 subscribers at this point today, right? So I think I saw like 45, 46, something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you know, see like a, a big downturn when he, when Elon took over in terms of, cause you started this, the dossier, was it 2021? Um, I believe it was July 2020 or 2021, but it's been okay. a couple of years. And, um, yeah. you know, the, the growth on the free, the free side is, is up only and it was growing very fast. And um, because my biggest platform is Twitter um, and, and my biggest platform is Twitter, by the way, you know, we'll give a little bit of credit to Elon, even though most of it was grown during the old regime where I had to be careful what I said, like kind of like being in like a Soviet style uh organization where you have to kind of like mock the regime but very carefully and yeah. and i managed not to get banned on old twitter you know i was locked out a bunch of times but my audience grew um i didn't even bother starting like a facebook or like insta or tiktok page about these issues that i was talking about because what i was reporting on you know was antithetical to all the corporate press and you know western government narratives that were populating the world and, you know, nobody wanted to hear it, uh, especially in these, you know, in, in Zuckerberg world and elsewhere. So uh, Twitter was growing. Um, I think Jack Dorsey kind of like at the end of his tenure basically gave up at some point. And that's probably why he departed to work on Bitcoin and other things and, you know, supporting Nostra and whatnot. Um but yeah, you know, with Substack, it, it was growing very fast. Um, and then the Elon <laughs> crackdown came. Um, and, and it's interesting you mentioned that, you know, he's kind of trying to turn it into this like WeChat thing. Because I don't know if you noticed, but even like if you don't have a Twitter account now, you actually can't access like anything that's on Twitter. Like if you just do like an incognito window search for someone's Twitter handle, like it's completely closed off. So, you know, there's definitely some downsides to that, too. Um, it kind of reminds me of like the conversations that are going on in the Bitcoin space where a lot of people are talking about, um, you know, paying like small amounts in lightning to access websites. And I think that that's a potential for the future. Um, but today, you know, it, it's, it's very difficult, like basically telling everyone that like, you're only going to be posting on Oster now, you know, there's disadvantages to that too. So, um, but I, I think that, you know, Twitter is really a mixed bag right now. Um, unfortunately, they seem to be clashing heads with Substack. 
I don't know who's telling the truth, but you know, Elon says they're basically stealing whatever sensitive information. So, um, in, and other, and on the Substack side, they said they're not doing any of that. So I'm not really sure what's happening, but, but, you know, unfortunately a lot of the <laughs> Substackers who really came to Substack for the most part to publish free of, you know, censorship devices, of course, you know, Substack isn't free from being pressured. You know, they have to rely on Stripe to process payments. So there's a lot of attack vectors there. And of course, it's centralized and everything. But Substack's been really good. I think 100% record in, you know, promoting at least lawful speech. Um, so I, I really like Substack. And, and I hope that, you know, I, I could appeal to um, the leadership at x.com to... Uh, at least get along with them because, you know, if you claim to support, uh, you know, you want, if you, I get that, you know, Twitter needs to make money like every other corporation that wants to exist. But if you claim that free speech is so important to your, your set of top principles, then you should probably find a way to allow for independent journalists to act, to promote their own work on your platform. Well, <laughs> you well that's the thing. I mean, so Elon is obviously somebody who is very like, publicly facing, you know, you rah, rah, free speech, you know, uh, even recently he's, uh, said they're doing away with the block button, right. To go to just like a mute only model, but where anyone you have muted, unlike a block, that person could still reply to you. Um, which is personally like, again, just my personal opinion. I think that's fine. Like on Noster, there is no such thing as a block. You can just mute it. So you don't ever see that person's, uh, anything that person posts which is fine. Like, I don't care if you see what I post my, I just don't want to see you in my feed. Um, and especially if it's like spam, some sort of bot, like, okay, just mute that. I don't need to see it. Um, but I know a lot of people, uh, I think especially like a very big accounts got a bit ticked off about the whole no block thing. But then I also, uh, who's the, uh, the woman that Elon now has in charge. Um, Yakarina, Linda yeah. Yakarina. She's like an advertising executive. Yeah. I, I saw you had a, you had a, tweet uh maybe it was today or the other day just being like she's basically got some fauci vibes to her like yeah and she that, she like, has that you know as as a someone who grew up in the new york city metro area i i identified the accent pretty quickly so she she even sounds like him in a way so it is it is mysterious in that sense well it's it's funny too because you've got somebody again like elon who's the you know the figurehead of it all um but obviously now he's you know he runs a number of companies He's not trying to handle as much as the day-to-day. -day. So he brings in someone like this. And the, as you've seen some of the things she said. What's the one? Uh, lawful but awful is how she characterized certain speech, which is like, okay, interesting. Um, again, like if it's lawful and you promote free speech, you would think that any speech that is legal, like as long as you're not inciting violence, would be something that's okay. But again, I feel like as much as, you know, uh, he's tried to say that this will be this bastion for free speech, it's going to end up getting itself into the category of, okay, we're like, we already know that he was pressured by what the Turkish government um, during the, the last uh, mm -hmm. election cycle there over the summer. Uh, we can assume that there have been other governments who have been able to successfully exert pressure on him. And this kind of comes back to the problem of again, like, okay, he's still running a company in the United States of America. Um, now, whether or not he caves to foreign governments, okay, that's a different story. One could make the argument that, hey, it's it's his company. Like, he bought it, he owns it. 
he can do whatever he wants with it. At the same time, it's like, well, therein lies the problem, right? And like, mm -hmm. I, that's, that's where protocols like Noster, I think are, are super powerful because there's no throat to choke. You know, there's no head to cut off. There's nobody to threaten. Um, it's like a, like a Hydra from Greek mythology. You know, you can cut off one head, two more grow in its place, but by the same token, those sort of organic grassroots movements tend to take a little while to get going. And Twitter now X has been established for a long time. I, I've very much enjoyed the platform for a very long time, but I'm interested to see where it goes. And I don't know, it's, uh, it seems to me, I've seen a lot of arguments that like, okay, he's just implementing all of the, the blue checks and then all the different layers of, okay, yeah, he's going to pay you out, but now you're KYC'd. And now soon you'll need to show a government ID if you want to prove you're a real person. Uh, he's not doing the world coin scanning your eyeballs thing, but you know, it, he's requiring an ID at some point. I like, I've saw, seen some screenshots of that, that some people leaked, but like, do you think that is his goal to transition X into some sort of a, a westernized WeChat where it's your everything app, like it's your payments app. We already know, you know, he was you know an investor and founder or co-founder of PayPal. Um, I don't know how much the actual work he did and how much of the just investment he did. I can't speak to that, but mm -hmm. he clearly has uh, his eye on the payment side. Um, I don't know if he's going to launch like his own X coin stable coin. Like I, I'd be interested to see as somebody who is an avid user of the platform with a lot of success, but also frustration, where do you see him starting to take this company and this platform, which is basically the de facto town hall, like, like it or not, Twitter is still the virtual town hall that we have. And it's, there are other options, but still it's probably the best one available. Yeah. Yeah. Twitter is still where the conversation happens as much as like the corporate media is frustrated by that. You know, they tried to do the, the threads launch with Zuckerberg and that oh. basically flamed out within a week because it was just like, it was like NPC, uh, you know, follow Shaq and, um, you know, some like random celebrities, boring hot takes that are very politically correct. So AOC, people... AOC, AOC, AOC was on there immediately, yes. like within a second, AOC was just going, going off on there. It was great. I, I thought it was funny that, you know, they tried Mastodon and Mastodon's like super complicated. And then they just like gave up on Mastodon. <laughs> but uh, it, it's interesting to see the journey of the NPC and, and, you know, where they end up. But, but I think with, with like Elon and his vision with Twitter, um, definitely you see with a lot of these great minds, undoubtedly he's invented some amazing products. Tesla, you know, I'm a former Tesla owner, love the car. Um, uh, SpaceX, amazing company, doing a lot of amazing things. Brilliant mind, undoubtedly. But, you know, just because you're a brilliant person doesn't mean that you could come up with some bad ideas. Like I was just, um, uh, for instance, like the movie Oppenheimer just came out, so it might be on people's radar. And I'm sure if you saw it, you caught it in the movie. Um, I think there was a brief mention that, you know, Oppenheimer after he successfully led the team that built the bomb, um, he and his colleagues, who were very much left-wing in orientation, that's kind of besides the point, they wanted, they thought that a kind of like one world government UN entity would be the best, um, you know, handler for a nuclear device. And for me, that's like the worst possible idea imaginable. And these were, of course, the probably the most brilliant 
three theoretical physicists that have ever come to, you know, grace our planet. And they had this awful, awful geopolitical idea. So uh, with Elon, I see a very similar circumstance happening, trying to create this everything app and then thinking in his mind that he's going to be able to make it, you know, somehow privacy oriented too. like, there's just no way Uh, unless he plans on, um, you know, becoming or ruling some type of very powerful country with uh, trillions Maybe. of dollars in his possession. I mean, he's he's the most you know successful entrepreneur per, perhaps of all time. But this would definitely be a level up. He 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 does not control the government. Um, he's still, you know, as you said, he, there's a lot of influences both from the east and the west onto his brands. And there's just to me, there's no way you can create a centralized entity like, like the whole lesson. Uh, you know, the whole dis- half the, the importance of the discovery of Bitcoin is that, you know, there is no, you know, one distributor. Um, right. And I think what you see with Elon is just like kind of this naive slash like very drunken, idealistic behavior and trying to create an everything app. And I know that, you know, reading on, you know, the history of PayPal and what he's done in the payments processing space is that he's tried to kind of do this before. And this idea was probably like a little ahead of its time in terms of the technology that was available. So now he's trying to do it again by acquiring X and trying to move everyone onto, you know, I guess a homegrown payment system. Um, But of course, like, you know what the deal is. If you're trying to create uh, your own currency, God forbid, that's going to compete with the dollar and you're the man in charge, it's just such an easy attack vector. If you're going to create X coin backed by uh, SpaceX reserves or what it nothing, it just doesn't make sense to me. I think that um, I, I think that he was right to try to um, chart a new course for Twitter slash X because Twitter was never a profitable company. So I get that critique, but turning it into the everything app is is very bold, to say the least. And I, you know, I, I definitely have. A lot of concerns about that. Yeah, you know, it's funny because you, you brought up uh, like the uh, the NPC journey on uh, to let's say other alternative social media, and like leaving Mastodon aside, the the ones where I saw kind of just uh, interesting things happening, like uh, so you know, Noster kind of came onto the scene uh, in like really came into people's consciousness in probably December, like it had been around for Fiat Joff had been working on it for a couple of years before that, but it was mainly a lot of, you know, like hardcore devs, like doing the real work, tinkering on this thing, building it. But it kind of came into the uh, pseudo mainstream in December, right? And uh, that, like, that's when I first started using it. I'd heard about it like six months before because I'm a slight nerd and was reading Fiatjoff's GitHub to find some lightning implementation he had done. And I was just like, oh, no, sir. Like, interesting uh, alternative social media. Okay. Anyway, next, like, let me find what I was looking for, like disregarded it. Like I disregarded Bitcoin the first few times I heard about it. Uh, but it really like had a quite a explosion there for a while. Um, and still is, still is growing, but that was also a couple months before, uh, blue sky launched. Like it kind of sucked for blue sky, right? Because they'd Mm -hmm. had this like big team, like a lot more coordinated, um, a lot of funding from, from Dorsey on that. And, like to his credit, I think it's great that he funds like a lot of different development. You know, he's not like picking a winner. He's just saying, you're building this, you know, decentralized technology. Okay. I've 
made a lot of money and I want to put that towards people who are building freedom tech. Great. But blue sky, I, I got it. One of those invite codes and I got on there once it launched. And I noticed that again, it was like a lot of the like politicians and sort of, uh, more blue pilled folks were like on there immediately. And the first conversations you'd see on there were like people getting offended by something and trying to figure out how they could kick the other, you know, kick the person who had offended them off of this, uh, this protocol, not a platform, <laughs> but off this protocol and just getting really bent out of shape about it. And again, like right away, you saw like the AOCs and the kind of like main, or I, I won't even, don't even want to call the journalists mainstream. I'll call them legacy journalists because they're not the mainstream anymore. They're the legacy. You saw a lot of them get on there and like, okay, interesting. And I saw that sort of same behavior mirrored in, uh, in threads where it was like blue sky is to threads as Noster is to Twitter in a way where on Noster, like you had that early Twitter vibe where it was just kind of like free for all. Um, but somehow like nobody's too concerned with, you know, labeling each other Nazis and kicking each other off of this thing. Um, and it's interesting to like, maybe it's because there wasn't anyone in charge. You, you have that freedom where you can say whatever you want. And when you have that freedom, people often don't take, like they don't take undue advantage of it. It's like when they're given the freedom to act how they want, they may surprise you and act a little bit better than you think. But when you impose mm -hmm. these arbitrary walls on them, whether it be on threads, whether it be on uh, Twitter or X or Facebook, I mean, Facebook, I don't, I haven't used Facebook in, years. I don't even know what the content moderation is on there these days, but you find that people, if there's a wall, people want to push back against it. When it's an open field, people are just kind of hanging out. And I think that's sort of a, a beautiful thing. Um, I'm interested to see where it goes. We've got to get you back using uh, Noster again. I know you had, uh, remember you joined up, um, you were, you were active for a little while, but it's, you obviously have like an audience that is almost as large like your Twitter audience is almost as large as like all the active users on Noster. So for you, it's like, okay, you're going to go where the people are because that's where your message is going to get traction. So I'll be interested to see how the kind of protocol evolves and how the, if we see more people running away from the centralized social media and toward the more decentralized option, but it takes time. I don't know. Yeah. Um, there's this thing about like, you know, Everyone in their head wants to be the hero who's the first person through the door. But it's like, in terms of success, <laughs> it's, it's generally not a good idea to be the first guy through the door because that guy gets, you know, their head taken off. So it's kind of like, so for me, it's like, I'm like sitting back, seeing how Nostra's doing. And, and I, I do want, like, I, I, I do kind of like lurk a little bit on the conversation. I'm still kind of figuring out how to... I'm very familiar with Twitter, but I'm still kind of figuring out the, the features of Noster. And um, it, it does seem interesting to me. Like, you know, I, I logged in the other day after being offline, uh, off the app for maybe like a month. And it did seem to improve like the speed and people were posting a lot more photos and stuff. So I thought that was interesting. And I know that, you know, there's a lot of Bitcoiners that are super passionate about it. Yeah, I, I just wonder... Um, as we're kind of like in this time where, um, you know, the, 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 I think the price action of Bitcoin ultimately like recruits more people into Bitcoin. And 
since we've been moving sideways for such a long time um, and that the Bitcoin community seems to be the biggest community at Noster, or if not like the only major uh, it's, it's, diversify it's diversifying out for <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that it, uh, like for Noster, I, I think for me, the goal is to see like success is like some, like a bunch of randos from some type of like niche community just show up there and you're like, holy shit, I think we might be onto something. And I think that's when Noster explodes. Like, I, I think that like, you know, Bitcoin, uh, I'm a believer in the number go up um, technology stuff. But I think that like when people of other interests start to like randomly show up, I think that's like a key indicator that the protocol is really working. Um, so it should be interesting. But yeah, like I'm definitely, you've convinced me to uh, double down and <laughs> I will I will try to spend more time in there and try to uh, engage people. After the, after our conversation, I'll actually tweet out my, um, my public key and that'll get some more. Bitcoiners on, or Noster people onto uh, my my handle, so maybe I'll engage with them some more. But I, I appreciate yeah, I, it. I, I'm I'm glad to hear that because I'm also thinking like for someone like you who is uh, let's say you're often sharing uh, some inconvenient truths um, hmm. that are definitely going against the legacy narratives, um, and so far so good on Substack, right? Like you haven't have had any issues with censorship on there to this point, right? No, um, not even a mention. I, I think what, what Substack, my issue with Substack is that basically the executives that run the show there know that most people who kind of like built a decent sized audience there came at it from like this dissident framework. I don't want to call it like right versus left, but like anti-establishment. Yeah, And it seems that they're their marketing and advertising, they're trying to bring more establishment voices into the fold, uh, which kind of annoys me. But um, as long as they give me a platform, I'm not so happy with the percentage they take because I feel like they're not doing as much of the legwork on the back end that they used to. But what, what I've already take? built up an audience. Sorry. What's, the, what's their cut at, on Substack? So, so Stripe takes... Um, a little less than 10%, I think. And I want to say Substack also takes around 10 to 12%. Uh, so well, a, uh, Stripe might be lower than that. I think they're like, they're like five to, I, I think overall it's around 15% total okay. between the okay. two. Um, it's, but it's, Substack, a decent, it's a decent chunk. Like, yeah, it's a good you know, chunk Substack, they're, they're trying to, they're trying to innovate in all kinds of ways and how to, um, how to boost subscribers, but um, I think they they kind of like overexposed the website to making trying to get everyone to build a newsletter, and I guess that's good for business. But it kind of like when you go to their they have this thing called notes now, which I'm not I don't really use too much, but it seems that they're just like they're they're finding so many ways to like cross pollinate the newsletters, and I, I get a lot of requests from people with other Substacks like, hey, can you repost mine? And like, for me, I, I want to kind of like protect, like, I, like I don't want to offend these people, but I kind of want to like protect my email list. Like, I don't know about you, but, I, but I, I like hate it when I get a random unsolicited email from some like, from some like political entity or some newsletter that I didn't subscribe to. So I feel like reposting, which Substack encourages you to do, 
um, I don't really like just sending my audience someone else's work because they subscribe to my work. You know, they can also sub subscribe to their work too. So I try to keep it like more in-house and I think that kind of limits the growth of my newsletter, but I'd rather do that and kind of like stay true with the audience. It's kind of part of the brand. Um, so I think they appreciate that. I mean, absolutely. Like anytime I get some sort of unsolicited email where I'm like, I didn't sign up for this. My first thought is, okay, like which one of you fuckers sold my email to somebody <laughs> exactly. else? Like I, I know that somebody sold my email. Who was it? Um, but the, the reason that I ask about censorship on Substack, and I'm glad to hear that that hasn't happened for you yet, uh, and hopefully will not, um, but I say yet just to leave the future open, uh, is because, you know, things, uh, I, I don't think right now that we're trending in a direction of, at least from the state level, we're not trending in a direction of decreased presence of the state and increased uh, liberty. Um, there are a lot of tools that people are building that are from the bottom up that are helping us hopefully push back against that top-down state uh, control apparatus. But in general, it's like, especially we're getting into election season, right? And things, I feel like uh, the line becomes even more fine from the state's perspective once you're into that election year of what is it okay to say and what's it not okay to say and what's, you know, uh, what's going to be termed misinformation or disinformation. And so I, again, to bring it back to Noster, that could be a really interesting way for you to at least have an alternate distribution mechanism. Like there's a number of tools right now, like uh, abla.news is one where you can publish. And it's basically like a, it's like a blog builder, but on Noster, and you can publish this long form content, all formatted how you want. Uh, but it's going to be broadcast to dozens of relays. And unless like every single relay des decides to censor you, which why would they, you've at least got something that is outside of the platform world and in the protocol world. So that if they start ripping yourself off of Stubsack, let's hope they don't, but at least you've got some sort of a backup there. So that, that could be a nice avenue for you. And again, not having, cause you mentioned just, I asked about the fees because I was curious and 15% is like, you're working really hard for this. Obviously they're providing a service, but that's yeah. a big chunk. And then, you know, you think about Bitcoin uh, on Noster and it's like, okay, there's no middlemen there. Like that's just you taking directly from your audience, or I should say your audience giving directly for, to you. So I, I think that's, that's an interesting angle for you to explore. And I think that we're going to see a lot more people who are publishing uh, information that could be, let's say, against the state's uh, interests migrate to Noster, at least I, I hope we do. Um, and I think we're seeing some of it already. But with that, I'd, I'd love to kind of transition to a little bit of just your background, kind of how you got started with uh, the dossier, uh, because you're one of these these voices. Um, both myself and Carla have been following you for uh, a couple of years now. And I think it was like during COVID that uh, and the kind of lockdown eras that uh, we both like found you on Twitter. And we're like, oh, this guy's like, He's saying some shit I like. Um, and and uh, you started publishing the dossier, but you've always, uh, at least that I've seen, you've been somebody who, I don't know what your uh, technical political affiliation would be, but you seem to call things out on both sides of the aisle pretty well. Like I've seen you go head to head with some diehard Trumpers and with some diehard Biden fans, um, if there are any that are truly diehard. Uh, but you know, you're, you're kind of pushing back against, uh, 
the legacy narratives in general. So kind of what is your background that brought you to start the dossier? I know you were in DC for a while, but can mm -hmm. you tell us a little bit more about that? Like kind of what brought you to start it and like what in your background has kind of prepared you uh, for this, this role that you found yourself in now? Yes. So basically when I went to, to college at a uh, small liberal arts school in New Jersey called Monmouth, I um, just like didn't know what I wanted to major in. And this is kind of where it started um, that I, I was just like interested in learning about the world always. So ended up majoring in international affairs and, and went to grad school in DC for that basically same degree for my master's. And basically, and you know, I was kind of like a very, I would say like an establishment Republican oriented politically person and um, thought I was very nationalistic, patriotic and wanted to serve my country. Um, so after grad school, you know, I wanted to become probably a, a member of a three letter agency um, so I was like, I was like way off course here. Like, you know, I, I was, I thought I loved freedom and liberty and stuff and, you know, totally head in the sand, propagandized by everything, uh, by the Uniparty for sure. Um, and then kind of like Donald, I, you know, at this time I'm working, um, coincidentally, I, I was writing a, a few papers in grad school and, published them and, you know, some media outlets took interest and I kind of just got like sucked into right-wing media world, published basically every outlet uh, you can imagine there and was on staff at a couple places like uh, Breitbart and The Blaze. Um, so I'm doing that for a while and still like, you know, I have this master's degree in national security and international affairs and I'm like interviewing with the feds. <laughs> and so like living in these like two kind of two parallel worlds, um, Donald Trump gets elected and like all this crazy stuff starts happening. And it kind of like forces me to revisit my worldview because it's the first time in my lifetime, you know, really my early thirties, but, um, where there was actually like an anti-establishment candidate that, um, came to office and I saw the, the wrath of the <laughs> deep state, uh, very close up firsthand. And I was like, okay, I don't really want to be a part of that anymore. Um, so my degree is a waste, but it came in handy during COVID times. Um, so I'm still kind of like working for right of center media. And, you know, I've always wanted to establish my own independent operation because I think that space is very limited. Uh, and the contracts are awful. Um, there's all kinds of nonsense that I could go into forever there. So I always wanted to start my own thing. Um, you know, fast forward to late 2019, early 2020, and um, I start reading about this coronavirus stuff. And I see that, um, you know, I, I like to read kind of like the source material. And at this time, I'm already like kind of um, slightly based. I am a, pretty much a Bitcoiner at this point, like, you know, gotten away from my shitcoining phase. So like pretty red pilled and I an orange pilled at the same time. And I'm reading all this stuff about uh, proper pandemic preparedness um, from like the WHO, from the CDC, um, what's going on in China, you know, knowing um, 
with my background, because I covered international affairs in the media space, that you know the structure of the Chinese government to be pretty suspicious of the press releases coming from the Communist Party of China. And like nothing made sense to me. Nothing they were doing was part of any of this original pandemic preparedness guidance at all. So it was all really weird to me. And I started to question the narrative. And then like, I, I was shocked by the human behavior that came thereafter that was directed towards me. Um, because like, as soon as I was saying this stuff, they're like, how dare you? Like, you're basically a bioterrorist if you're not um, adhering to the narrative. And a lot of people were scared at this time. And, um, you know, for me, I was like, I was pretty freaked out for a couple of weeks. And then like, the more I read about it, I was just like, this is nonsense. Like there's, there's nothing really to be fearful of. And then I'm sure you can relate to like the similar situation of kind of feeling, um, I, I probably started following you and Carla, maybe like 2021, and there was like this sense, I think, among a lot of us where it's like, we're fucked. Like, this is pretty hopeless for a while, but like, hopefully we're going to awaken some minds because like, I remember, um, you know, I'm a big mixed martial arts fan and, you know, I, I, uh, a jujitsu practitioner and I like love watching UFC. And I remember Dana White was like the first big, uh, was leading the first big sports league to kind of um, try to get back open and try to have fights. And I remember he tried to host something in California in the early COVID days. And this is when I really knew we were screwed. You had American politicians being like, wow, that's like really insensitive that you're trying to have entertainment. Like this is a, this is a somber year. It was like a somber year. And at this time I'm living in DC and you know, none of my friends want to do anything because they're all scared. So it was just like a really, um, so I moved to Florida at the end of 2020 and have been in South Florida ever since. And, you know, really like it here. And um, so that was kind of my journey into like, you know, red slash orange pilling. And, you know, the more, uh, and, I, and I've written about this issue extensively. And, you know, I found myself even looking at what I wrote about coronavirus hysteria. And like, even then in the early days, I was giving way too much credit to the people in charge. Like the, the amount of scams that they've uh, been able to run over us has been impressive. Um, and even like buying into these seemingly innocent narratives, I think was a mistake in, in the first place. So um, I, I think that a lot of us uh, on the bright side, we learned a lot from this era about human nature and about you know getting out in front of things um, and all of that. But I hope that answers your question, that long-winded answer. No, it, it answers it very well. And it, it is interesting, like on the one hand, uh, you know, well, it's easy to be labeled a conspiracy theorist just for even asking a question that's outside of the, uh, the given stated narrative these days. But, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to think, well, God, like, these damn bastards, like with this master plan that they're, that they're putting in motion. But then I'm like, you know what, but these fuckers aren't that smart. Mm -hmm. But then like, then the other side of things is like, wow, but like we can barely, you know, coordinate a orderly withdrawal of troops from uh, a foreign land. Um, and that's like just the military you're working with, but how did like every global government and like every state government somehow in the U S manage to coordinate this, fairly uniform response to the COVID crisis 
where like I can't think of a time when uh, the world leaders, uh, those in power really, quote, came together uh, like that. And of course, it was for, uh, let's say, authoritarian uh, reasons. But that was something that was kind of shocking was like, you know, you want to think on the one hand, there are these people pulling the strings. On the other hand, you think, God, but the puppets that the that whose strings they're pulling just all seem like completely hapless idiots. But then on the other hand, you're like, wow, this was a pretty coordinated response um, and happened pretty quickly. And somehow we reached this consensus with a couple of outliers in terms of, you know, internationally, but where every, all these countries just kind of were like, yep, this is what we have to do. Like we have to adopt this totalitarian hand here. And that's the only way you'll be safe. And it, it kind of goes back to like this, like COVID was the perfect step in the perma crisis, I think for a lot of, for anyone that has authoritarian leanings, like, cause I feel like that's what we've been living through at least, you know, like I'm in my early thirties as well. Um, it's just like this constant, oh, this, this perma crisis where you go from, uh, I mean, what we can go back to like nine 11, if we want to like a horrific and terrible, um, attack, but one which was also used as an excuse to not only invade many other countries, massively expand the military industrial complex and hugely enrich defense contractors, but then also to institute things like the Patriot Act. Um, and then you go into like, okay, great financial crisis. Like, and there were probably a couple of crises in between there. Um, but then you go into that and you see a whole lot of other new rules and regulations come up. And then you get into like, I don't know if the next part of the crisis, which was, was like for a lot of people, Trump, like, oh my God, orange man, so bad. Like I'm, I'm no Trump fan. I think the guy's a jackass, but <laughs> the response of so many people on the left, like truly becoming hysterical about him as though he was just this antichrist. I was like, we're blowing some things a little bit out of proportion here, guys. <laughs> and then you go from, okay, finally Trump is out of office. And like, we still heard about, or I mean, fuck, we're still, he still takes up so much of the news cycle, which is just yeah. astounding. Like, I think the media realized like, wow, this is just a cash cow we can keep on milking, like keep Trump in the news. But then we had the, you know, the war, well, COVID, the war in Ukraine. And now it's like, okay, we're starting to shift that permacrisis narrative towards the climate crisis again, um, which is always kind of an underlying narrative there. And it's like, you know, first of all, the media loves a permacrisis because they make money. Like they need to run news to make money, right? Um, the government loves a permacrisis because with every new iteration of it, they find a new way that they're able to clamp down a little bit more. And then there's this weird group of people, which is shockingly large, who also seem to love the permacrisis because I think people, like if there is not a lot of meaning in your life, you search for meaning. And in absence of any good uh, source of meaning that you can give yourself, you want somebody else to hand it to you. And these types of people make whatever that particular crisis du jour is into part of their identity. And, and it's become so integral to them that like, they also become experts on the subject. Like all of the, you know, the armchair doctors who were very, very certain that cloth masks would prevent this respiratory virus. And all of the people with, you know, in the Western world with Ukraine flags in their bio that are suddenly like military experts. And, you know, people talking about Ukraine and the Donbass region who literally just found out about it on Wikipedia yesterday. And, but like, it becomes part of their identity. 
And then it's so hard to shake. And it's also so hard to ask questions about because any questions you asked are not taken as just questions. They're attacks on that person's identity. And like, now I just wonder like, what is the next perma crisis? Like, is it a combination of COVID lockdowns with like climate hysteria turning into climate lockdowns? Like, is that where we go next? Is that the, you know, <laughs> I, I guess, where do you, where do you see the evolution of the perma crisis uh, going to next? And I guess uh, put another way, what is the state's next excuse to try and remove more of our liberties from the individual? Yeah, I, th I think you're right that the, the current perma crisis map is basically flipping the channel between the climate hoax and COVID and trying to see which one's working better. Um, <laughs> it's hard to tell in like in Florida, but I hear stories from people that live in like major cities and especially like New York, LA, Chicago, that a lot of people are re-masking, which is sad at this point. Um, I, I think that these people should just be mocked and ridiculed. Like, I don't care if they have some type of uh, thing going on. Like, it's just, it's just ridiculous. Like I have no empathy left for these people, but it's um, you, what, what I fear is that because I think that like, you know, these, these crises have an expiration date. Um, you see it with Ukraine now that it, it's really a hard sell. And we talked about like, you know, the depravity of, of the ruling class. Now you have, you know, you had this awful wildfire in Maui and there's barely any federal resources getting over there, you know, weeks after the game. Um, and they're in Congress now they know that they're going to struggle to have votes to pass the Biden administration's 24 billion additional dollars for Ukraine because it's becoming deeply unpopular. So what they want to do is they want to tie the Maui funding to the Ukraine funding so that everyone votes for it. And it's like it's like an out for the people that are the fence sitters. So they can't like so their their constituents can't be mad at them. So it's just kind of goes to show it's a good example of like what goes on in our halls of power, like the moral degeneracy. Um, but I think what I fear with the next um, step of the perma crisis is you're going to have like these type of, um, I don't know if you want to categorize them with like, as like false flag events, but you know, this whole idea of like a cyber pandemic, like purposeful destruction, if, if things go south, and, you know, although I, I want to see, I, I'm looking forward to, I think, an inevitable era of like hyper-Bitcoinization hyper um, because, you know, the, you know, our inflationary fiat bubble is eventually going to pop. But I think on the way down or on the way when, when these people start to, you know, re retreat from the chaos, they will have to impose some type of sabotage to get away. So that's what I think is to look out for, like a type of, some type of very weird situation. But I think that at the very least, this COVID era has made lots of people uh, skeptical of, of government force. So I would, I would be on the lookout for something like that to happen, this type, type of you know, major incident um, throughout the United States. Unfortunately, you know, these people really... Um, have no shame at all and, and a very limited moral compass. And they just like, don't really care about their fellow citizens whatsoever. Uh, you know, 
if you go back to like the foundations of the Federal Reserve and U.S. monetary policy in the last hundred years, um, it boils down to, uh, you know, I don't want to sound like, a, you know, socialist, but it, it is true that our economic system is basically robbing the vast majority of people through monetary policy to enrich the elites. And, you know, that's been working for a very long time. And um, I think uh, technology has, you know, there's been some amazing innovations over the past few decades that have helped to kind of like bail out the elites and kind of extend because extend their, their timeline of power because quality of life has definitely increased, especially in the United States. But, you know, there's coming a point in time when the bills do and, you know, they don't want to pay the bill. They want us to pay the bill. So that's when things get kind of dicey. And I think we're going through that era right now. You know, they need to, they need to pay off all of these lobbyists, all of these industries, uh, you know, the military industrial regime They're they're hungry again, and, you know, uh, one year of Ukraine or one and a half years of Ukraine, just isn't going to do it for them. You know, they want oh, another Afghanistan. So it, it should be interesting to see how things play out. You know, we already got pharma got paid. So I think pharma's taken care of for a while, but there's all these industries um, of, of the elites that are going to want to get uh, their chunk of change too. So we'll see what happens. You, you know, it's it's so interesting because you said like, I don't want to sound like a socialist, um, <laughs> when, but you made a very valid critique. It's it's funny because like we tend to uh, think in these very like binary terms of like, okay, the general assumption right now, if you listen to actual socialists, not because mm -hmm. you're obviously not a socialist, but if you listen to actual socialists, um, they will refer to what we have now as this, as capitalism, right? Yes. Um, like hyper-capitalism. Right. But, <laughs> but, but what we have now is like not capitalist at all. Like it's a kleptocracy run by a gerontocratic oligarchy. Um, and it's, it's just so funny because it's like, you know, uh, people always say, or well, the socialists, you know, oh, real socialism's never been tried or real communism's never been tried. It's like, fuck man, real capitalism has never been tried. Like mm -hmm. you, because you've always had the state. I mean, how can you possibly call something a capitalist system when you have the state doling out massive, massive subsidies and picking the winners and losers and giving contracts to their friends and freaking, I mean, not even to get into the insider trading, like, wow, we've got, I'm glad Nancy Pelosi was able to retire as the number one trader, like, of <laughs> congressional history. I mean, really just hats off to her. But it, it's just so funny because it's like, uh, yes, our uh, the parts of our system that are capitalist um, have enabled us to, as you correctly identified, achieve a massive improvement in the standard of living. And the those good parts of capitalism, or I should say the parts that are actually capitalistic of our system, have lifted up the majority of the world out of poverty. Um, it's, you know, it's one of the safest, most, or the safest, most peaceful time uh, to, to be alive, right? Like mm. that being said, you have this massive uh, state apparatus at the national level and the international level, which is just sucking actually so much air out of that system. Like so much of the productivity of Jeff Booth talks about this in his book, The Price of Tomorrow. Like technology is naturally deflationary everything should be getting more affordable for us. And then you'll always have the fiat economists who say like, 
well, but look at the price of flat screen TVs. Like they're getting cheaper. And so like, okay, thank you for that. You know, that one example, uh, you know, meanwhile, everything else is getting more and more expensive, more and more, you know, out of reach. If we're talking about things like home ownership, you know, you used to be able to have one parent working, uh, usually the husband and that parent was able to support his whole household with two or three or five kids on one salary without working three other side jobs uh, by just saving, being relatively frugal, but still having a great standard of living and being able to own a house and then pay it off. And now we're at this point where I think, I think a lot of the kind of black pill energy that's out there, especially in some of these, uh, like the, the folks younger than us, like that are coming up right now, coming into the workforce, they're realizing, oh shit, I thought I was getting paid a lot. Like this new, you know, this job I have out of college is paying me well, but I'm never going to be able to afford to buy a house like my parents have. That's just, it's just not mm -hmm. possible. And so I think you start to see, that's when you start to see like that apathy, that hopelessness, I think leads more people towards this hyper leftist mentality of, well, then I, you know, I just want it given to me. And I'm not saying that everyone is the case. There are many, many hardworking people in every single generation. It's not a generational thing. It's just a societal thing where we're at in this cycle of growth and decline of boom and bust, which is just a, it's not a bug of the fiat system. It's a feature, right? And so it's, it's interesting. Cause I think you're right. The, the bills coming due. I mean, look at the, look at the national debt, look at the interest on the national debt. Look at how much that is just like going up exponentially at a certain point, like something's got to give. Luckily, mm -hmm. uh, not luckily for everyone else, but luckily if you're an American, like uh, the US is still, it's still, you know, number one, like the US dollar is still the world's reserve currency for now. And like it or not, everything else will break before the dollar does. Like it's the prettiest horse at the glue factory. It's not mm -hmm. it's still at the glue factory, but like, so many other currencies are going to collapse long before the dollar does. So at least we've got a little extra cushion, but that also sucks if you're not in the, uh, you know, in America, like we've done this for a long time, just exporting our debt and our inflation to the rest of the world to somewhat mask things at home. And I have a, well, I mean, it's a good thing. Our military is so massive and the military industrial complex is well-fed because if that wasn't the case, we'd probably see other countries push back a lot harder. And that's why our military is so big, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I think speaking of that, we're kind of entering this um, for the first time since probably the end of World War II, we're entering this multipolar environment where you have a lot of, where you have other players, specifically China, but there's others that seeming, that are like seemingly ready to contest the global hegemony of the United States. Um, I hear things about like this BRICS currency and whatnot. BRICS just stands for, uh, it's just this uh, coalition of uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. But, you know, I just, it, it seems that they, all these countries share a very similar mentality. So it's just like a race to become the best fiat. Um, it's like, I don't know, do you buy into any of this stuff that they're like, they're suddenly going to create like gold backed or Bitcoin backed national currencies? Like, I, I just don't see that panning out, because, especially like in an alliance, because you have all kinds of interests there. Um, I, I, you know, I, I hope at least that the, that the future is just 
is just Bitcoin. Um, and that they're like, I, I just don't see like any type of like intermediate term fiat that's going to, you know, supersede the dollar. I, I, I don't know. What's your take on that? No, it's, it's an interesting question because like you see a lot of people in the financial media who are like, you know, BRICS is what is really going to destabilize the dollar and dethrone it. But then a lot of people, you know, are also saying, oh, and, and it's going to be backed by, you know, a basket of currencies, a basket of their currencies, right? And then maybe also have gold reserves backing it. But it's like, you really think that Russia and China and India and Brazil and all of them and the plus countries, however many of those are really going to give each other the green light to go in and audit each other's reserves of gold? Because that's what's going to be required if they want to actually back it by gold, right? Like, I know well, or countries. they could scam people. They well, could exactly. always scam people and just say that they have this amount of gold and trust me, bro. Right. Well, and, and that, that's what they would have to do because like, we you know, we know that like China and Russia as you know, they're uh, let's say uh, a wary friend with each other. Right. Mm-hmm. But obviously they're, you know, they're still watching their own backs, but I just, I find it hard to believe that they would really open up their books essentially to be like, yep, we, we can promise we have this much gold and, and you can come here and audit it every two years to be able to see. Like That being said, I think it's, we have a lot of things that are uh, kind of reaching this confluence at the same time, right? Like you've got this very obvious changing of the guard happening in so many countries around the world um, where the gerontocracy, which has, I mean, look at a guy like, like Joe Biden. He's been in politics for... 50, over 50 years, like in some capacity, I mean, like conveniently, you know, entered politics right around, you know, in the early seventies, like, you know, what the fuck happened in 1971, um, <laughs> this whole, but this whole political class was entering politics, at least in America, where they're very old, was entering politics in that early seventies or maybe early eighties era. They've been in power in moving up that ladder since then. But at a certain point we all die, right? Like, and as long as some of these people seem to live like improbably long, I'm like, seriously, how is it that some of the worst people like how, is, you know, how is Kissinger like outside of the technical, <laughs> but like, how is Kissinger? He's a hundred now. I, I know. He's 100 like, years old. <laughs> like how, how are you still alive, dude? Like, but the point being, we've got this whole political class and that has been around for forever, decades and decades, longer than most of us in the younger generation have been on this earth. They've been in politics, but at a certain point they will die off. Right. And what I'm curious about is like, what fills that vacuum? Because like, clearly there's a lot of power grabs happening in sort of this last ditch effort to retain as much power as possible until you, you know, have, you know, like literally we've got walking zombies like Fi- uh, Diane Feinstein. It was like, like, what, what are you doing? Like you, you are just run by your handlers and a lot of them are right. But who then fills that, that power vacuum in terms of actual leadership? Like, and especially right. as we go into these next few election years, let's say, you know, presidential election next year. Um, but then, you know, we, there's always another election. Um, that's, you can always count on that. Right. Like what happens to that power vacuum who fills it? Is it the, you know, the young people that are in office right now? Uh, like the, let's say on the left, the AOC type people, the, you know, Ilhan Omar, do we see that class move into those 
even more high powered positions? Or do we start to see just kind of a rejection of the incumbent political class, regardless of age, and start to see a new wave of people become interested in politics because they say, you know what, I'm just, I'm sick of this and it's not working. And even though you're a young person in politics, you're still more, you know, you were working with the old guard. You're still just more of the same. Like, where do you see that heading? Like who fills that vacuum and, and what comes next? It, it, it's a great question because I, you know, I, I spent, I think eight years in Washington, DC and you don't really realize when you're in there, you don't realize the extent to which everyone is kind of trapped by the uniparty once they enter Washington. Um, you know, my background's in foreign affairs and um, foreign pol- U.S. foreign policy. And what you find is that, like, there's not much of a difference, really, between these um, think tank operations, whether, you know, they support uh conservative or liberal candidates, the policies are very similar. And it's basically just all about, you know, enriching the industry that supports them. Um, So I I think that, that, you know, if if you're a political leader today, the best thing you can do is to get people away from D.C. and spend as much time outside of D.C. as possible. Um, There's a lot of interesting institutions that have kind of like unique ideas that don't have to do with, um, you know, empowering the DC ruling class. And almost all of them are based out of outside of Washington, DC. And I don't think that's a coincidence, whatever, a lot of things happen there that just corrupt all of these legislators. And it's, it's hard to be optimistic for, you know, especially people that are trying to change things on the federal level, whether they are the president of the United States running the administrative state or some of it, or you are a congressman or a senator, um, you have very limited mobility. You know, as much as we like someone like a congressman, Thomas Massey, um, there's only so few of them in D.C. You know, basically there may be Maybe you can make a case that out of the 535 members of Congress, there's like 15 of them that are kind of, kind of cool and have interesting ideas. I think there's like one, one or two established like Bitcoiners. You have Cynthia Lummis, who I think is actually like well-read on Bitcoin and would maybe consider herself a Bitcoiner. And then you have Warren Davidson, who's um, a congressman, who's like, half crypto, half Bitcoin, but at least it's talking about Bitcoin. So I, I think that like when it comes to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm much more optimistic about um, kind of like things like what happened in Florida, where you just have um, more local power to make change in your community. It's very tough on the federal level. But of course, as you know, the problem is that as much as our our Bill of Rights and uh, Constitution grants um, powers to the states through the federalist system, the money printer is controlled by you know these very centralized federal institutions. Um, you know the power of the, the the states have no power to you know spool up the money printer. So again, you know Bitcoin fixes this, but right. um, there's only so many things we can do in our politics without breaking the money printer. So I think that's, that's, uh, that's ultimately the goal at the end of the day. 
No, I think that's, that's really well said. It's like, uh, you know, we, we sound very, uh, repetitive and cliched oftentimes as Bitcoiners, you know, uh, you know <laughs> fix the money, fix the world. Like, but they you know, there's truth to that. There's a whole lot of truth because so many things, you know, you see people on, on both sides of the aisle, this is not exclusive to Republicans or to Democrats, but depending on usually if the opposition party is in power, uh, the other side likes to complain about the state of things. Like that's just how it works in this Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola uh, democracy that we have is okay. When you're, when your guys in power, everything's great. And when the other guys in power, everything sucks. And the reality is that it's like, you know, the uniparty is much more pervasive than people realize, but more so than that, it's that because the money is so broken, there's only so many changes that any individual in the executive branch can make. Like, sure, they can sign a whole lot of executive orders, but as we all know, those executive orders tend to be things that are more of those, uh, uh, I don't want to say superficial issues, uh, but they tend to be the kind of the ones that get their base riled up, right? And and supporting them. Like it's the, whatever the, the hot topic of the day is that everybody's really fighting about. But those hot topics of the day are typically meant to distract people from the fact that, again, our money is broken. Like you are losing purchasing power every year. Um, and as much as we, you know, there are supposed to be checks and balances in our, uh, you know, in our system, the, there's not really any checks and balances on the creation of the money, which is ultimately at the heart of all of it. And so I, I, it's frustrating sometimes when you see people who are, you know, on the left complaining that, okay, it's usually on the left, it's, you know, uh, uh, wealth inequality. And uh, uh, why doesn't the rich pay their fair share? Just to throw out some generic talking points there. And on the right, typically more, you see uh, oh, well, you know, inflation and prices, you see more talk about the Federal Reserve on the right, I think, I think it's safe to say that, but it's still it's a little bit misplaced, because people are talking about the the symptoms and blaming those symptoms on the opposition party, versus talking about the disease itself, which they either are ignoring or don't know about. Um, and they also don't know about any potential cures, like Bitcoin, and now Bitcoin doesn't fix everything. But it certainly does provide an escape route for people who are willing to learn about it. But I'm curious, you know, because you, I think, have probably uh, still a pretty large circle of people who are very uh, deeply ingrained in, let's say, the political sphere. That's safe to say. And I'm, I'm curious um, how many of them are really, you know, uh, orange pilled. Um, where do you do you hear a lot of talk about Bitcoin as it relates to? monetary policy or is Bitcoin still kind of seen as operating in a vacuum from the more uh, the people who are more, let's say, politically focused versus monetarily focused, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin policy seems to only interest people in the political world during a bull run. So it's like it, it was so fascinating because I talk about Bitcoin a lot on Twitter and I have a politically engaged audience. And I would get, you know, when Bitcoin was making its run to 68, 69,000, and I was inundated with messages about, you know, how do I buy Bitcoin? What exchange should I use? You know, what wallet should I use? You know, all the, the starter pack questions. But when 
we're in a bear market compared to you know the Bitcoin's fiat exchange rate, it's like silence. And, and when I talk to influential people about this, they're like, yeah, you know, I know that's the solution, but we need like a stopgap measure. And I was like, all right, fine, fine. But the, the second, you know, you turn on your, you know, you, you log into your favorite Bitcoin price app and there's, you know, an 8% green candle, then suddenly everyone's interested again. It, I think it, it, it has a lot to do with like this, like human market psychology that it, it makes sense why so many people struggle to, to save and increase their purchasing power because like everyone wants to buy, everyone says they want to buy the bottom and sell the top, but for whatever reason during Bitcoin cycles. And, you know, I, like I said, I believe that there's no, there's no exchange rate at which spending a dollar to buy Bitcoin is a bad price, especially nowadays, but it's just for whatever reason, there's always more interest. And I'm sure like you've been through a Bitcoin, a few Bitcoin cycles now too. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's the same with the political class. Like, you know, when Bitcoin is at over 60,000 US dollars per Bitcoin, there's so much interest, you know, people want to bring me on their podcast, let's talk about Bitcoin. And when it goes down a little bit, and perhaps they had finally decided to throw some money in, they are not happy with me. And you know, they think yeah. Bitcoin is a CIA op. And, you know, uh, a lot of people, I, I think there's this like, there's a lot of laziness, not just in, I think, DC world, but just people don't want to do their own research. They want to be told what to do. Um, you know, they, for good reason, lots of people don't believe in anything anymore <laughs> because, you know, they've been lied to by the people in charge and they're very skeptical about everything. And of course, this also applies to Bitcoin, but, you know, to defeat that, you could read about Bitcoin and come to at least come to a basic level understanding that like, you know, you can't just hack the whole protocol and steal all of the money. <laughs> so it, it's just, I, I wish, but for whatever reason, it, it's very difficult to educate people on Bitcoin. But I, I think during the next bull market it, it is, is a great time to capitalize on that as much as we can get some like real sound policy measures in place because like there's just there's just nothing you can do to get people like you know you can point them to the rabbit hole but they need to physically enter it if that makes sense it's just whatever I, i'm not some kind of like master at uh convincing people to do stuff anyway so um perhaps if you have any ideas to, uh, you, I mean, you've done a great job orange filling a lot of people with a lot of your, you and Carla's great Bitcoin content and work, but it's just, you know, in, from, from the policy and politics world, these people are only interested, as you kind of said, it's kind of like when the TV turns on and they're talking about Bitcoin, they're interested in Bitcoin. <laughs> and I guess I'll leave it at that. No, it's, it's so true. And it's, uh, it, it is a, it's a tricky thing too, because like I've got friends on all sides of the political spectrum. Like I don't, you know, give a shit what your politics are. Uh, if, you know, if I like you as a human being, uh, and I've, I don't want to reduce you to your politics. And, and I like that because then I get to actually hear things from, uh, my friends that are 
completely like uh, just on either side of the aisle. And, you know, strangely, you hear like uh, when it comes to lack of understanding, that's where people on both sides of the aisle find common ground, right? Where, like if you, when you see, you know, there are a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of anti-Bitcoin people on both sides of the aisle. There are a lot of pro-Bitcoin people on both sides of the aisle. There are a lot of pro-Bitcoin people who find themselves, I think the more you go down that rabbit hole, the more you start to realize the extent of the uniparty to a certain extent. Um, you start to realize the prevalence of the state and the pervasiveness of different means of control that exist within this state apparatus. And, you know, hearing things, uh, it's, it is really funny. Like you still like, we, you know, that we're early because you still hear the most cliched possible uh, anti Bitcoin things from people who really like all they know is what they saw on a, you know, 30 second hit on, you know, the TV um, or they read in the New York times or whatever else. And it's, you know, on the left, it's typically, Oh, this is something that's, you know, bad for the environment. Um, and of course they haven't looked into, um, you know, mining Bitcoin with flared gas or anything like that. They haven't looked into load balancing the grid. They, they don't know about any of that stuff. They just know what the headline said. They probably didn't even read the whole article. Uh, and on the right, maybe you get a little bit more, I think you get this from both sides though, of the kind of like, well, you know, uh, either like the, the Donald Trump type view of, well, I don't like anything that goes against the US dollar yeah. or the, it's used by criminals or just the same old regurgitated talking points. But it's always very clear, like with those types of people on either side, whenever I hear those really just basic and like the same talking points I've heard a thousand times before, it's a great opportunity to turn it back to the problems that that person has with society in general. Like, you know that they've got a grievance and it's not that they don't like Bitcoin. It's just that they honestly don't understand it. And they're trying not to come off as stupid. Like they just are so many people are really terrified of saying, you know what? I, I actually don't know that much. Like, can I ask some questions? Some people are great. I appreciate that because that's how you learn. But a lot of people, I think in this day and age, it's like no one wants to appear stupid or uninformed because they have all the resources to do infinite hours of research onto any given topic. So, you know, it, but it's always easier to regurgitate a couple sound bites, uh, pretend like you kind of know what you're talking about, and then go back to your cozy existence of living in your box and looking at the world through your red and blue blinders and blaming the other party when things don't go your way. Uh, but what gives me, you know, I think the orange pill is a bit of a white pill in a lot of ways, because mm -hmm. it really does give you some hope because you see, like you go to a Bitcoin conference and you see the diversity of people. And I'm not talking about like the, the bullshit kind of diversity. Like I'm not talking about diversity quotas. I'm talking about like actual diversity of people from all over the world, from all different backgrounds who have been brought together by Bitcoin. And who are trying to build tools to maximize our human liberty and prosperity. And that's like something that's really heartening. So like, it's easy to get black pilled and be like, you know what, God, we're just, we're so fucked. Like so many people are just have their NPC blinders on. They've been programmed. They're going through the motions. We're fucked. But then you see, you know, people who are the exact opposite of that and who are not only like talking the talk, but they're walking the walk and actually building things. And I'm, I'm so grateful to developers who 
especially open source devs who are like, you know what? I'm just going to like, fuck it. I'm just going to build it. Like, I want to see this thing and I'm just going to build what this is. And I wish I had those kind of skills. I do not. So I use the skills that I do have, but yeah, like I, I so much appreciate, I, I so much appreciate, especially those with um, technical expertise that are, there's a, there's a lot of them that are working in Bitcoin when they could be working for Google or Apple, making a ton of money, you know, being a corporate drone, having a nice, you know, actually being able to afford a house, which is rare, but, but and, uh, and instead they're working on, you know, a, a, they have like a grant and they're working on an important Bitcoin project. You know, these people need to be recognized more often um, than they are. And, you know, I, I get that some of them actually prefer the anonymity, which I even appreciate more. So it's, uh, it, it's very encouraging. Like that, I, I agree with you. Like people, uh, I think if they're, on the fence about not even, you know, if they just want to learn about Bitcoin, they should just come to a Bitcoin conference and check it out. Like there's, there, there's no better vibes than at a, you know, a, a real like Bitcoin only event or conference or meetup. I mean, the best of people, uh, obviously, including you and Carla. <laughs> and it, it was a pleasure to get to, to meet yeah. you in the meet space uh, in Miami. That was a, that was a good time. Um, so I, I want to, I think like, start to wrap things up. But one thing before we close out that I wanted to get your thoughts on was just as we go into this next election cycle, now that we're uh, kind of full on talking about Bitcoin here, as we go into this next election cycle, like we've seen, just speaking of Miami, um, at the Bitcoin conference down there, we saw both Vivek and RFK both uh, come out and with some very pro-Bitcoin sentiments, both of them starting accepting campaign donations in Bitcoin, that's like a pretty huge moment um, uh, for us to see this. And this is people again, one on the right, one on the left. That's great. I like to see it. That's depoliticizing Bitcoin um, to a certain extent. Where do you see Bitcoin fitting into the narrative going into this next election cycle? As somebody who has, you know, seen a few election cycles, being in the swamp, being in DC, like you know how these narratives are spun. Do you think this is kind of the the cycle where, you know, because we're also going into the halving next year, like we've got a halving, we've got the election, we've got, well, probably um, an ongoing crisis or two that'll be spun up between now and then, uh, who knows, maybe the same ones we have now, who can say what the perma crisis will bring. But where do you see the narrative going as far as Bitcoin as part of the election cycle? Um, you know, uh, I know DeSantis also came out on the Twitter space he did. Uh, mm -hmm. And was like, you know, I'm I'm pro Bitcoin. Like, so that's that's three not fringe in any way, but mainstream candidates who are vocally pro Bitcoin. That's something that's never happened before. How does that start to change the narrative, not just around uh, the politics of Bitcoin, so to speak, uh, but the conversation around money in general? Like, does it give us maybe a more nuanced discussion in the in the debates? than we usually get, which are so many times just superficial soundbite mm -hmm. debates that are completely worthless. Yeah, so so I'm, I'm torn about this because uh, I, I think that, um, you, you know, I, I think you're right to be critical of both sides, which, you know, during the Trump presidency, um, especially during at the end, during the COVID era, uh, you know, a lot of the inflationary 
stuff we're seeing today is due to passing those massive multi-trillion dollar stimulus bills. Um, but realistically right now, uh, you know, the polls, at least if you believe some of them, uh, Donald Trump's a huge front runner and he's going to be having a conversation with Tucker Carlson um, Wednesday, I think at the same time when the debates are happening. So like, it, it's that. not even clear. I, I think we'll know um, because I don't think Trump's going to, Trump is very good at staying on message and he probably won't even entertain the idea that anything, you know, he'll just say that the economy was great and Biden's causing inflation. Like, I think that's right. all we'll get from a guy like Trump. I'm what would be interesting is if we see um, a real contender emerge on the GOP side that is willing to critique both sides. Um, so we'll see if that happens. I think we'll know in the coming weeks um, if these debates can generate some energy for someone because um, right now Trump's like 40 points ahead. And, you know, I, I think that what it, the, the, you know, the politics black pill, I guess, which is, you know, could be uh, turned into a humanity white pill is that maybe we'll see Joe Biden and Donald Trump debating and people will just be like, oh my God, you know, they're both the problem, right? So right. you're going you're, you're to see two, to, Trump's going to be almost 80, um, yeah. you know, if he gets the nomination is debating Biden. Biden will be completely senile by then. And imagine those two yelling at each other about who's to blame for America's economic woes. Maybe that'll be our route to Americans discovering the fact that the money is broken, more Americans at least. So I think maybe they'll they'll let us in on the secret without intending to. But, but for sure, with, with these debates, um, if there's an established contender, there's certainly an opening to target the economic policies that have led to, you know, our eggs um, becoming uh, the next gold. So we'll, yeah. we'll see. Do you think, because uh, I, I did see that Trump was going to be, you know, uh, not engaging in the debate, uh, which, you know, kind of he and Biden are going by the same playbook here of, oh, I'm not going to, from Biden's side, he's like, well, I'm the president. I'm not, you know, debating RFK or anyone else. And Trump's side is just like, no, like, I'm, you know, he's doing, <laughs> he's doing his own thing, right? Uh, but I would hope, because I mean, Tucker is somebody who is definitely on the road to being orange pilled. I think he he has mm -hmm. a, I've just, I've heard that uh, in personal interactions with him, like he's very curious about Bitcoin. He asks a lot of the right questions, not superficial ones, but deeper ones. And, and he's a guy who I think has become very uh, uh, disillusioned with establishment media and the establishment in general, uh, more so recently as he's kind of completely stepped out of that role uh, or was pushed out of that role, however it went down. Do you think there's any chance that uh, Tucker actually kind of pushes Trump on like, you know, listen, your administration was overseeing uh, the Treasury and the Federal Reserve uh, during the time where all of this massive amount of money was printed for these stimulus packages. And, you know, does that conversation come around to Bitcoin in any sense? Or do you think it's going to go more boilerplate and where we're going to see the actual action is, OK, in these smaller debates where neither Biden nor Trump are present and we've got both Republicans and Democrats, you know, debating each other in their pods? Is that where we're going to kind of see uh, the real action happening? 
It, it will be interesting to see. I, I know that before Tucker was silenced and kicked out of Fox News, he had done a couple segments and had mentioned Bitcoin. I mean, he interviewed um, Bukele. You yeah. Know, like, that was huge. Yeah. And he seems very, I, I think you're right. He seems very open to the idea that like he should further explore monetary policy and you know, he's, he had all the right questions. Um, the thing is with Trump, he has yet to really grill him on anything. So yeah. I, I think that we'll, I think we'll see if we watch the interview, we'll see immediately if he's like how he sets the tone, because there's also this idea that I've heard floating around, which is just rumors that um, he feels the need to kind of like, be on side with Trump because he views him as the eventual nominee. And, you know, Trump is a very sensitive guy, so he doesn't want to, you know, lose access. But, but I think that, I, I think that hopefully Tucker will be tough with him and do the American people's service and at least hold him accountable for some stuff. But uh, I, I think we'll definitely see early on because uh, Tucker is really his own man. So, you know, I, I hope that that he goes for it because, you know, the American people deserve transparency from both sides, from both people that want to be president. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think we'll, we'll, we'll see it immediately. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're right that it's just it, it, it's inevitable that, you know, you can only even if people are running on this, you know, endless fiat treadmill all day, they're they're going to just start asking more and more basic questions about why they can't afford anything, why they need to take out, um, you know, a, a loan to pay for, for their new TV over, you know, an eight year payment plan period. So I, I think that it, these questions will inevitably surface and, you know, then, then Bitcoin wins, but um, we can definitely accelerate adoption if our, if people in positions to do so can, can at least help us on this mission a little bit. All right. I mean, at least we see there's no doubt that the Overton window is shifting, like, and it's shifting in a, a good direction where Bitcoin is not just this fringe thing anymore. Bitcoin is something that presidential candidates in the U.S. are talking about. It, mm -hmm. And it's something that presidential candidates around the world are talking about, um, you know, down in Argentina. Uh, like this is this is something that is no longer just uh, a small subset of people. This is fully in the mainstream uh, dialogue. I would hope, just back to Tucker and Trump, I would love to see Tucker ask Trump about that fucking god-awful NFT collection scam that Trump <laughs> My God, that, but I highly doubt, as you said, he want, Tucker probably wants to toe the line, have Trump back on, keep those views flowing. So he probably won't be like, you know, what the fuck was up with that NFT collection, man? Uh, but maybe a guy, a guy can dream, right? Um, well, before we close up, is there, uh, first of all, thank you, because this has been a pleasure talking with you. Um, great to get your insights um, and just uh, for the audience to learn more about you as uh, a human being and also a Bitcoiner. Um, where should people go to find you so that they can check out your work? Um, feel free to, uh, to pump anything that you want in terms of the newsletter or your Twitter to uh, all the massive audience of the Bitcoin podcast uh, growing by the day. Um, but yeah, where should people go to find you? Now, I so much appreciate you having me on and, and it's going to be, it's going to be huge. Undoubtedly you'll have, 
explosive growth if you don't get banned from every platform by the end of the year. But no, no, I, I think it's, it's going to be awesome. Um, and I so much appreciate uh, it. was a great conversation. Um, to read all my r- latest work, you just go to dossier.today. That's kind of where um, all of my non-shit posting goes. I'm also uh, on Twitter, just at Jordan Shaktel, no spaces. Um, but yeah, appreciate it. Good conversation as always. Absolutely. I'll link all of your stuff in the show notes as well so people can find it if they don't know how to spell dossier. You don't need to be embarrassed out there, people. It's okay. Um, but thanks so much. Um, so at this point, I'd like to thank everybody for joining us for this episode of the Bitcoin podcast. Bitcoin podcasts are abundant, but Bitcoin is scarce. So thanks for joining in to listen to this one. And that's a wrap on this Bitcoin talk episode of the Bitcoin podcast. If you're interested in sponsoring the Bitcoin podcast, head to bitcoinpodcast.net. You can find me on Noster by going to primal.net slash walker. If you want to follow the Bitcoin podcast on Twitter, go to at titcoin podcast and at walker america. You can also find the video version of this podcast at youtube.com slash at walker america and at walker america on rumble. Bitcoin is scarce. There will only ever be 21 million, but Bitcoin podcasts are abundant. So thank you for spending your scarce time to listen to another fucking Bitcoin podcast. Until next time, stay free.